0: We are in a series uh, in in the Book of Revelation, and um, <clears throat> I know some of you are thinking you're daring. Well, maybe or stupid. I'm not really sure, but um, we we are in fact in a series in the Book of Revelation. We are um, uh, at uh, Revelation two verses eighteen through twenty nine, the the letter to the church in Thyatira, and. Um, The title of our series is The Revelation of Jesus Christ, Worship and Witness in a Winner-Takes-All World. Worship and Witness in a Winner-Takes-All World. And I've given a subtitle to this one, which will not be so obvious from the text, but it will be by the time we get finished, which is Kiss the Son Lest He Be Angry. Kiss the Son Lest He Be or Become Angry. And um, anyway, so uh, Revelation Chapter 2. I'm going to be reading from the New International Version. Uh, Whatever version you're reading from, that's fine. Um, And uh, beginning in verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, then all the churches will know that I am He who searches the hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations and Nations, that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word... It is intended to speak to our souls, our heart, Lord, our very inner being, our hearts and our minds as we read here. It's intended that you would examine our hearts and speak to us by your Spirit what you see and that we would have the appropriate response to it. And I pray, Lord, that you would enable us to hear and to respond accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen <laughs> Sorry hmm. yeah, that's weird timing, you know <laughs> how do you how do you deal with that? okay, in his book American Jesus: How the Son of God Became a National Icon, Stephen Prothero goes in search of the cultural Jesus. Prothero explores america's varied cultural versions of jesus. Uh, Is he an enlightened sage, or the sweet savior, or possibly the manly redeemer, and of course, the superstar? There are more on his list, to be sure. He writes this, though. He says, Polls reveal that Americans of all faiths view Jesus overwhelmingly in favorable light, and that he has a strong hold even on those with no religious training. Amazingly, nearly half of the country's non-Christians believe that Jesus was born from a virgin and raised from the dead. Here, atheists and Buddhists are active producers and consumers of images of Jesus who, in many respects, function as common cultural coin. Talk to a Hindu and she might tell you that Jesus is an avatar of the god Vishnu. Ask a Jew and you might be told that he was a great rabbi. And then he writes this. In a best-selling novel from 1925, Bruce Barton describes Jesus as the man nobody knows. Today, he's the man nobody hates. The image of Jesus embraced by our culture is not consistent with the image of Jesus created by our text. I mean, honestly... Many people would be uncomfortable with the image of Jesus created in this text. In fact, many of us, at some level, me, I would be uncomfortable with the image of Jesus created in this text. And for that matter, the other six messages, prophetic messages from Jesus to the churches. The Jesus of our text will battle false gods and destroy them. The language used to describe that is even harder than that. The, the, the prophetic messages in Revelation to the churches make clear that Christ, like His Father, is a jealous God. He claims not only to be the only God, but the God for every people of every nation. Closely connected to the issue of idolatry, which was in last week's message for sure and in this te- text as well, but closely related to this issue of idolatry is the discussion in church, the church world about separation versus engagement with the world. Separation versus engagement. And the church historically goes from one swing of the pendulum to the other. We need to be separate. We need to be engaged. We need to be separate. We need to be engaged. The church or churches in that swing, on the separation end, the, the battle cry is holiness. We need to be separate because we're called to be holy. On the assimilation end, integration, assimilation, it's love. Amen? We need to get to know them. We need to love them. They're very real issues that we need to get right. In John's revelation, he is pushing for separation throughout this book, to be sure. And the battle cry is faithfulness or loyalty to Christ. Allegiance, as we talked about last week. And, and assimilation in John's world involves idolatry in its various forms, especially allegiance to Caesar and the empire. We, we must be careful in our push for love and therefore cultural engagement that we aren't assimilating idolatry. Come out of her, my people. We read in Revelation 18, So that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. How do we engage the world while not being assimilated into its philosophies and worship? That's the pressing question for us. How do we maintain a witness to the world if we are called to live in a way that offends the culture around us? Which surely we see in our text. The prophetic messages to the seven churches are about the church's witness to the world. They are called to be lampstands. The two with the best witness were poor and weak. The one which had... Essentially, no witness was rich and fully engaged with culture. In Thyatira, how was the church to maintain its witness in a culture that required idol worship as the admission price to participate in the economy? In the West, idolatry has become less overt and more covert, making it harder to discern. And there is not, to be sure, a one-to-one relationship between their idolatry and our own. But we must not cease exploring the same kinds of economic and political idolatries which Revelation keys in on. And I'm going to just, there's a slight danger we need to avoid. Maybe it's not slight. (laughs) Maybe it's a big danger that we need to avoid. And, And that's this. We, because we do not have overt idolatry, you know, people sacrificing on altars as a regular part of our public life, we have a tendency to, well, of course, that doesn't exist, so we, met, we, we turn into metaphor our idolatries, you know, and it's true. Anything I love more than God is idolatry, right? And we can just kind of go on with, really, you can get to where there are so many idolatries, and it's true. But the danger is in the book of Revelation, we need to key on the particular kinds of idolatry that John is describing. While we may not have to bow down and worship the the, the empire, the reality is we have idolatries with our own leaders and empires. Political and economic idolatry is what the book of Revelation is targeting. And so we've got to keep our focus on those particular kinds of idolatry as we walk through the book, and not let those get lost in the mix. John seems to view economic and political systems as cords of the same rope, if you will. Politics are almost always guided by our economics, or in the words of Bill Clinton, it's the economy, stupid. Our participation in an economic system is never neutral. Never. Not then, not now. Jesus made that clear. We cannot worship God and mammon. And if we want to discover the idolatries that we've engaged in, well, we need to follow the money trail. We'll explore Jesus' message to the church in Thyatira under five headings. Uh, slightly different than before, but including the same five things. Uh, we've got Christ's credentials. We've got Christ's commendation. Um, we've got Christ, uh, uh, after that was his, his critique of them, and then the last two, instead of having uh, Christ uh, uh, corrective, calling them to repentance, and then Christ consequences, we've got a part A Christ corrective and consequences, part B Christ corrective and consequences, because the text divides it up that way, so uh, that's how we've divided it accordingly. So, Christ's credentials, verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. To the angel of the church in Thyatira. In Thyatira, if you're traveling from Pergamum to Sardis, you will come to Thyatira, a wealthy city of commerce and manufacturing. It was no New York City Not even in Atlanta, but maybe if we're talking on a relative scale, maybe a Charlotte, North Carolina kind of place. Fully engaged in commerce and the economics uh, of their world. Its economic strength was tied to its superior organization of trade guilds. We've talked about these trade guilds where you had to belong in order to participate in a given trade. And they would have dinners where you would worship the emperor and idol-sacrificed meats and and, and, and sexual immorality, we'll talk about that more. But they had the most organized system of trade guilds of, of anyone in that uh, Asia Minor that, that, there. Every artisan belonged to a guild, and every guild was economically powerful and highly influential. There were trade guilds for artisans in wool, uh, linen, leather, bronze, armor, dye, tanning, pottery, baking, and much more. They even had a guild for men in the prime of life. don't want to know what that one was like. Um, You, you, You may recall Lydia in the book of Acts over in Philippi. She's a prominent Christian in Philippi who was from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, we are told. Artisans from Thyatira discovered how to make purple dye in a significantly less expensive way than anyone else had done. So they used that to make a name for themselves, and of course to prosper greatly. Uh, the city was associated with that unique die. It's, it's interesting because in Revelation 17 we discover that at the heart of Babylon is the harlot who commits metaphorical adultery with the kings of the earth, and on whose, uh, 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 on whose wine the inhabitants of the earth get drunk. Now it's not a literal drunkenness, but they're drunk with the prosperity that she offers. We read there that the the harlot was dressed in purple and scarlet. Coincidental? Maybe, if you believe in coincidence. (laughs) But keep it in mind as we walk through this text. It's possible that this reference to purple and scarlet hints at a connection between Thyatira and Rome. The merchants of the earth grow rich on her luxuries, which is to say she is in league with businesses, maybe through guilds such as those in Thyatira. And Jesus identifies him first as the Son of God. Now, not only does Jesus grab two lines from the vision of Jesus in chapter 1, but before those two lines are put forward as his credentials... This title, the Son of God, is put forth. And it's interesting because this title, the Son of God, while we're familiar with it because it's all over the the New Testament, in the book of Revelation it appears once, right here. One time. Makes it kind of unique, makes it stand out. It is a fitting title. And in verse 27, as we're going to see later, Jesus quotes from Psalm 2. The Messiah is identified as God's Son in Psalm 2. You are my Son, today I have begotten you. A verse that was used repeatedly in the New Testament as a a pointing to Christ's resurrection and ascension. You are my Son, today I have begotten you. The the key storyline of Psalm 2 is that the kings of the earth, though aligned against God, will ultimately have to submit to His judgment. The kings of the earth are aligned against God, but they're going to have to submit to Christ at the end of the day. And interestingly, that is kind of the theme of the book of Revelation, and certainly of our particular text today. So it's a fitting psalm. Caesar may think he is Lord and call himself the Son of God, Julius, or later the Son of God, Augustus, but Christ is the Son of the Creator God to which Caesar must submit. And for those that are wondering, no, I'm not talking about myself, but yes, I will have to submit to him, and I trust I am. Sorry. Each of the next two descriptions highlight Christ's role as judge. Each of the next two descriptions highlight Christ's role as judge. Eyes like blazing fire. His eyes being like fire means that just by looking at us, he can test our hearts like bronze in a furnace. He doesn't need to stick you in the fire. he look at you and the fire is coming. And He can test your heart. So that, as verse 23 says, Christ says, I am He who searches the hearts and minds. See, he has those eyes which see our deepest self. So it's kind of like a spiritual x-ray vision. Feet burnished, our feet like burnished bronze. You see, Jesus has already stood the test. Jesus has already been in the fire. He's walked through the fire and came out pure. His feet are like burnished bronze. He is the faithful witness. He was faithful all the way to the point of death, Philippians 2 tells us. He did the Father's will. Now He is qualified as judge and calls His people to live with a pure, devoted heart to Him. Both of these descriptions comes straight from Daniel 10. Eyes like a blazing fire, feet like burnished bronze. Where Daniel encounters a man who has been doing battle with, guess who, the prince of Persia. Now the prince of Persia, just think the prince of Babylon, because Persia had come in and taken over Babylon. It's the same place. He, Daniel hadn't moved from Babylon to Persia. It's just the administration changed. Jews began referring to Rome as Babylon after 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed because, of course, Babylon destroyed the first temple. So now Rome's Babylon in their minds. So it's quite fitting here that you have this man who is like the man that was doing battle with the prince of Persia. Jesus presents himself in a likeness to Daniel's man doing this battle. And that leads us to Christ's commendation. Verse 19, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are doing, now doing more than you did at first. Christ genuinely commends them for their deeds. In fact, he gives a full description of the kinds of deeds they did. His commendation is based on their deeds, namely their love, faith, service, and perseverance. And in verse 23, Jesus tells those who do not repent that he will repay them according to their deeds, which will be, of course, a different kind of payment because of different kinds of deeds. The church at Ephesus, you may recall from the first prophetic message in the beginning of chapter 2, they had forsaken the deeds they did at first. And in Thyatira, they're now doing more than the deeds they did at first. It's great commendation. And what kind of deeds are these? Love, faith, service, and perseverance. One could easily read that line this way. I know your deeds, namely your love, loyalty, labor, and long-suffering. You like the alliteration? Works well, right? Love, loyalty, labor, and long-suffering. Yes, your deeds of which the latter exceed the former. These constitute their witness in the world. Their lampstand, their deeds of love, faith, service, and perseverance, or love, loyalty, labor, and long-suffering. Their love, it's not merely a feeling, but it involves actions. Their loyalty, that's that word. Remember we talked about this last week. The word for faith is pistis. In any political context, it's loyalty or allegiance. We also see it translated faithfulness, which is closely akin to loyalty and allegiance. We're, faithfulness to God, faithfulness in, 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 in relationships. You know, it's not just believing something. They're deeds of loyalty, in this context I believe fits well, or allegiance. Labor, servi- service or ministry to and for one another. Long-suffering, more particularly this is talking about endurance or bearing up. More in reference to endurance in the face of persecution, including consequent poverty in their case. And it includes that perseverance to the very end. The one who endures to the very end. That's a significant issue at play. And through these deeds, their lampstand was shining. Though they abound in deeds, Jesus also has a serious critique. And that leads us to our third point, which is Christ's critique. Nevertheless, verse 20, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, the obvious question that we have to wrestle with here is, who is Jezebel? And I don't mean who is the Old Testament character by the name of Jezebel. Clearly, whoever this person Jezebel is, is not exactly that person, but is being given that name as a reference to the immorality and idolatry that uh, she led the people of God into. But who is this Jezebel? Is she, and there's, there's two ways to approach this, is she a literal teacher in the church who obviously goes by another name to whom John assigns the biblical moniker Jezebel? Well, that's the majority position on this text, and it surely has its merits. For one, it's the natural read of the text. I mean, that would be the most natural way to read the text. It's, in other words, it's a literal reading of the text. It does have a few problems, though. In verse 23, Jezebel's children, her children, as they're referred to, are almost always by scholars taken to be a metaphor for her followers, which I think is certainly right. However, why is one figure, the mother, literal, and the children figurative? Kind of an interesting take to split that up. Um, John, elsewhere, in Second John, the second epistle that he wrote, uses... The lady and children metaphor, in Second John we read this in the first verse, to the lady chosen by God and to her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth. Now, in the context of that letter, it's quite clear that the chosen lady is that church and the children are the members of that church, because the way that letter closes just as one clear reason. It, he, he writes, the children of your sister, who is chosen by God, send their greetings. So you've got the chosen lady and her children. Oh, and the children of your sister, chosen by God, send the greetings. Who is this? It's another local church. You've got two local churches, the, the chosen lady. And John's doing that, and nearly all scholars agree on that point. Well, if John does that here, then when he's talking about Jezebel and her children, might he not also be using metaphor for the whole thing there? So the other option, of course, the one is that she's a literal teacher from the church. That's where most scholars go. Uh, you might suspect, since I put it in the second position, that I'm going to go with the second one. <laughs> okay, might be right, might not be. Let you decide. Uh, but that's that the description, or that it's it's used as a metaphor, and the description of Babylon in chapter 17 of Revelation as a harlot is seen by many scholars, if not most, as an allusion back to this Jezebel reference, even if not the same person, just, oh, Jezebel's already been put in our heads, and this is describing her. And they may not make the connection as that's who this is, but I would argue that maybe maybe we should consider that it is. Though there the name Jezebel is not mentioned, the correlations are somewhat clear. And between that and the mention of purple and scarlet in the description of the harlot, Which has relevant connection to Thyatira, a metaphorical use of Jezebel is certainly quite possible. Um, Let me at least offer why I think it's the better of of two views, the two views. One, if, if it's metaphorical, then who is Jezebel? Well, Revelation 17, let's read the first six verses. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who has seated. On many waters, and whom uh, the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of those uh, of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. "...holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations of the, and the impurities of her sexual immorality." Read their idolatry. The biggest metaphor for idolatry in Scripture used persistently is sexual immorality, fornication, adultery. "...and on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of the prostitutes of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus." And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. The prostitute is closely associated with the beast that she rides, which is clearly Rome in the book of Revelation. She seduces people to fall into empire worship and is associated with the wealth of the beast and her, with her gold, jewels, and pearls. At times, the two can hate each other as much as they seem at other times to love each other. Jezebel lures God's people into worship of false gods, namely the beast, for the sake of economic gain. That these two, the beast and the harlot, the prostitute, can have a love hate relationship is of no surprise given world history. How does Jezebel lead Christ's servants into sexual immorality and into food sacrifice to idols? How is she connected to the beast and that idolatry? Well, she entices the members of the churches into participating in the trade guilds for its economic benefit. And such participation involved worship of various idols and ultimately Caesar. And these trade guild dinners also involve sexual immorality. Now, whether... She's a metaphorical. In other words, whether it's referring to a system of economics that entices the people or whether it's referring to a literal lady in the church that was teaching false things, whichever way you want to take it, it's that same means by which that enticing is happening. It's about compromising our allegiance to Jesus. That leads to our fourth heading. Which is Christ's corrective in consequence, part A. Look at verse 21. <clears throat> "I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling." So I cast her, I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, then all the churches will know that I am he who uh, searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now, to be sure, um, when I get to these verses, it makes my metaphorical take on Jezebel the hardest, okay? Because it would look like, wow, you're going to strike her children dead, you're going to put her on a bed of suffering. How could she be a personification of a system, an economic system, entangled with a political system, an idolatry? And It does strain a bit. What would it mean or what does it mean for Christ to say, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling? Well, it would certainly be easier to suggest that there is a false teacher who's already been warned by Jesus and possibly John that he's referring to as Jezebel. But might it be said, let me just pose the question, might it be said that Christ gives time to political economic systems, kings, queens, princes, and those who rule? To repent? To act rightly and justly, in other words, to God and one another, lest He destroy them? Might it be possible? I would say yes. In fact, interestingly enough, because He will quote from Psalm 2, Psalm 2 does just that. It calls nations to repentance. So, not only is it possible, it's very close to our text. By a very strong hyperlink, if you will. Connection. To Psalm 2. In verse 27, Jesus quotes from Psalm 2, verse 9. We'll get to that in a moment. But Psalm 2, verse 10, the very next verse, is an appeal for repentance from kings and rulers. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. And in verse 12, kiss the son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your... Destruction. So the nations are called to bow to Him and to lead their kingdoms to be established as His kingdom is in justice and righteousness, with peace. Kings of the earth are to have a relationship to Christ, not the harlot, not Jezebel. He had given them time for repentance, certainly plenty of time. But now, judgment is about to come. Jezebel and those who enter her immorality, which is, again, figurative for idolatry in in terms of her immorality. There is literal immorality going on, so there's a back and forth in the usage of that word clearly done. But Jezebel and those who enter her immorality will suffer intensely. I will strike her children, her followers, dead. This is, an appeal. this is an appeal to the members of the church who follow her to repent. Whether it's the metaphorical, political, economic system in which they're entangled and is leading them to worship the beast, or whether it's a literal lady, they need to repent. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering is literally, look, I will cast her on a bed... And those who commit adultery with her into great suffering or great affliction or great tribulation. In those days, people did not eat a meal sitting on a chair at a table. That's not how they ate food. So when they went to these these trade guild dinners where this immorality and this idolatry is taking place, eating idol-sacrificed meats, when they arrived there, they would recline on a couch. And eat. It is the place where the immorality would take place. I and mean, they've got pictures of what would take place at these. And I, it, it would shock you that you think you do. it's like some sort of business dinner. This would be going on. But it went on. And so the bed, that word for bed, could just refer to the couch they ate on, on the one hand. Um. But also, to throw or cast onto a bed is a Hebraism. It's a a, a way the Hebrews would reference, an idiom, if you will. A a sick bed, a bed of suffering. And it's a pun. I mean, you've got to play on words going on here. I'm going to cast you on the bed. You want to go eat at those feasts and worship the idols and partake in that sexual immorality with women, to say the least, scantily clad, serving you the food? You want to do that? I'll cast you on a bed. You want a bed? I'll give you a bed. That bed that you're reclining on is going to become a bed of suffering for you in a turn of phrase. Their activities on one bed will lead them to suffering at another. Indeed, what becomes a death bed. Then all the churches, we read in verse 23, will know that I am He who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now that verse, or second half of verse 23 that I just read, comes straight from Jeremiah 17.10, where we read, I the Lord search the heart and examine the mind, and reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. The primary change, really the only significant change in that quotation, is Jesus says, I, the Lord, or, or where, where Jeremiah says, I, the Lord, search, Jesus says, I am he who searches. Now remember, I, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, means that they're translating the Hebrew for Yahweh, okay? God's name. So where Jeremiah says, I, Yahweh, search, the heart and mind, Jesus says, I am he who searches the heart and minds. And then quotes the rest of the verse. And you see this all through the New Testament. Jesus, or the apostles speaking about Jesus, will put Jesus where Yahweh had been in the Old Testament quote. Meaning, of course, that they understood the deity of Christ clearly. How might we be similarly tempted to forsake those deeds which are our witness, our lampstand in the world? And we can talk about them, I mean... Last time I checked, your work doesn't require you to partake in these things. Generally speaking, I, my own experience, I've had times when there's similar kinds of things, but, but, not generally the rule of thumb. So, how might we be similarly tempted to forsake those deeds which are our witness, our lampstand in the world, particularly when it comes to economic, political, entang- politically entangled systems? I mean, have we, for instance, in our work world bought into the tyranny of productivity wherein the world is a factory and people, you or others, are commodities to be used for a profit. It's all about what you can produce. It's all about how much you get done. It's all about... Why? Because at the end of the day, we worship money. Success. Idolatry is not always about what we want but how much we want it. You've probably heard that said before, right? That's true enough. I think in John's revelation, we might say it a little differently. We might say it's not about the inherent goodness or badness of a particular political or economic system, but about how much we undo it with power. How much trust we put in that political or economic system. That it is the thing that will bring us Happiness keep us safe and secure. In my life, every time I begin to think that the stock market is the answer to my retirement, it teaches me a lesson severely. <laughs> it's, just, it's just endless. You know, at one point I was determined that I could retire by the age of 40 and have plenty to live on. Two years later, I had about, uh, well, I, don't know, I could fit it in my pocket and change, you know. I mean, it's just, that's what happens. <clears throat> Must the rules of capitalism or a free market dictate our decisions? That profit or free market has the almighty power to discern good from evil? Well, that can squelch deeds of service and love. That our national allegiance, ways that we might be tempted, again, what are ways that we might be tempted? Well, maybe to think that our national allegiance and the manipulated fear that we have of immigrants releases us from our obligation to have compassion for immigrants and their plight. That swelches deeds of love. Or how about the idea that might tempt me that the idea that what I receive as income and growth is mine to do with as I please? Really? Is that how the Bible teaches us to think about our possessions? I suggest not. Jezebel and her followers have been called to repentance and told the consequences of their refusal, but what about the others in Thyatira? Well that leads to our final point. Number five, Christ's corrective and consequence number RB. And, and, and corrective is actually replaced in, in effect here, you'll notice. Um, with the absence of a corrective, if you will. Verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching, and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. Now here's the corrective. I will not impose any other burden on you. In other words, there's no more correction. You're doing fine. Keep that up. Except to hold on to what you have until I come. Now, There are faithful ones left in Thyatira. Not everybody's following after Jezebel's teaching. These don't. And and what was her teaching? What is this teaching of Jezebel? The, The teaching or indoctrination that it is okay that they participate in trade guild meals in which idolatry and sexual immorality are in play. They are... Surely, these faithful ones who have not done that are surely feeling the consequences of their faithfulness to the Savior in their pocketbook. They're experiencing poverty as a result. But Jesus says, I'll put no other burden on you. They are further described as those who have not learned Satan's so called deep secrets. That's how the NIV reads, similarly, the ESV. So what are Satan's deep secrets? I, to understand this, I think it's helpful to read a translation that is syntactically literal. In other words, the word order of the words is the same as the structure of the original language because that is necessary to understand what, what I think is going on here. Uh, And here's how it might read literally in word order. Not necessarily the best translation, but literally in word order. Whoever does not know the deep things of Satan, as they say, I will not lay on you another burden. Now, in the original language, that phrase, as they say, which the NIV and ESV use translate as so-called, in other words, what they say, so-called, and and that, that phrase in the original, as they say, could apply to what comes before it and it can apply to what comes after it. So we have to ask ourselves the question, how do we know which one? Well, the answer is simple. Context is king. It's the only way you can tell. What's the context? So let's just look at the possibilities here. Um, if it applies to the deep things of Satan, then what we're saying, what John would be saying, is that the church members were believing a doctrine that they themselves called the deep things of Satan. You following me? If the they is referring to the ones believing the deep secrets of Satan, then it's saying that the church members are believing a doctrine that they themselves called the deep things of Satan. Now, I highly doubt that is possible or even reasonable, that a Christian, a professing believer of any kind, would embrace a teaching that they called the deep things of Satan. Hey, guys, this is great! <laughs> no. I don't think that's likely. More likely, they were promoting some deeper truth, like those in Corinth had tried. An idol is nothing at all, to which Paul says, the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons. Note the, the, the similarity between his reference to demons and John's to Satan. The the idols of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. And Paul's referring to these same dinners, trade guild dinners as well. So alternatively, what's the other option? It, It refers forward. As they say, and then what follows is what they say. I will not lay on you another burden. Now, there is much to suggest that this would be true. The word translated burden is only used six times in the New Testament. And one of those is Acts 15, the apostolic decree that was read in all the churches. We, we've referenced that apostolic decree last week, but as you, I'll, I'll back up a little and read. It says, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, to lay on you no greater burden, there's that word, than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled, those are things all related to the idol sacrifice process, and from sexual immorality, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Now that's read in all the churches. So this would mean that Jesus is requiring of them nothing more than what the apostles, the authors of the New Testament, had already given them as requirements, and of which they were familiar. Probably the very reason why they weren't going to these things and they were remaining faithful. He's telling them that he will not add to that instruction that they must abstain from those things. I think that's probably the easiest or best way to take it personally. And that leads to Christ's consequence or his reward for them. And the last we get to the reference from Psalm 2 that I've been promising you is here. But if you'd read with me in verse 26. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I'll give authority over the nations. Now from Psalm 2. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I've received authority from my father, and I'll also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says. To the churches. I'll give authority over the nations. Just as Christ was obedient, faithful all the way to the point of death, and was therefore highly exalted, so these believers, if they are faithful all the way to the point of death, will be given authority and placed in authority over the nations in the eternal kingdom. When the disciples asked Jesus one day, If we forsake all to follow you, what's in it for us? Jesus answers, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, at the regeneration, literally, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Or when, when the Corinthian church is going into Roman courts to settle disputes among them, Paul asks, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now that's in the age to come, on the other side of the tomb, if you will. But Paul thinks, well, if that's the case in the future, should we not be able to settle these disputes that we have now? Should be good training. (laughs) Jesus is promising the faithful believers in Thyatira that they will rule in the regenerated age, the new creation. In Revelation 20, we read that those who were either martyred for their faithfulness to Jesus or refused to bow down to the system for economic gain would be given authority to judge the world. And then there's this other promise that he would give them the bright morning star. It's ultimately a promise of Christ himself. The very thing, that they're giving up wealth, they're giving up all their status, they're giving up all the pleasures of this life in so many ways. What does he give them? He gives them the only thing that will truly satisfy himself. Thanks be to God. Is Christ enough? The only way we can keep ourselves from idolatry is if Christ is enough. If we require Christ plus comfort or Christ plus prosperity or Christ plus fill in the blank, then whatever that plus is, it divides our devotion to Christ. Believers at the end of the first century were accused of being atheists because... They worshipped only one God. I mean, the logic was quite simply, (laughs) they don't believe in all these gods. (laughs) There's only one. They're atheists. They're non-believers. Believers today would never be accused of being atheists, to be sure. Ideally, that's because society believes in one God, not because Christians worship as many as the world. I'm not sure which one it is all the time. What are those things to which we've ascribed power, which Christ claims as his own? What are they? We should all be exploring our own hearts. For where we've gotten entangled in political and economic systems and given allegiance to something and trust to something, to provide us with something that Christ alone claims the power to, to give. Heavenly Father, while we cannot make one-to-one direct correspondence from the text to our lives, what the particular temptations and idols are, we must have your help to discern what those connections are, where those lines are drawn, especially in our own hearts and lives, so that we... can root them out and be faithful to You. And Lord, fill us as a church, I pray. Fill us ever more and more with deeds of love and loyalty and labor and long-suffering. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.